Welcome to Last Month at the Federal Circuit. In this extension of the Finnegan podcast, attorneys from Finnegan examined recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the IP community. Finnegan partner Mike Jakes joins us now to offer an update on the Atrix software and Berkheimer cases. He'll also share insight into two other cases dealing with attorney misconduct. Last month, Dory Hines discussed the Atrix software and Berkheimer cases, which dealt with challenges to patent eligibility under Section 101 when there are disputed factual issues. Even though eligibility under Section 101 is a question of law, disputed factual issues may preclude summary judgment, as in Berkheimer, or judgment at the pleading stage, as in Atrix. In particular, Berkheimer held that whether certain claim elements or combination of elements represent well-understood routine conventional activities to a person skilled in the art is a question of fact. Mike, what has been the reaction to those decisions? People recognized immediately the impact of the Berkheimer and Atrix software decisions, both in litigation and prosecution. The cases were seen as tilting at least slightly back in favor of the patent owner. In particular, in litigation, these decisions give patent owners some hope as how to avoid judgment at an early stage under Section 101. They can draft their complaints by including factual allegations that certain claim elements or combinations of elements are not well understood or routine or conventional activities. But it's still going to take some time to see the full impact of the decisions in litigation. The impact of the Berkheimer case on prosecution has been more immediate. On April 19th, the Patent Office issued one of the more consequential opinions on patent eligibility since it first issued its memorandum on ALICE. And this April 19 memorandum from the Patent Office recognizes that resolving questions of whether claim elements represent well-understood, routine, conventional activity may require actual evidence. The memo clarifies that this is a factual determination and it has to be supported. And in particular, the examiner has to expressly find that the claim elements are well understood, routine, or conventional, and the examiner has to support that rejection in writing with certain evidence. There's a discussion of the impact of this Patent Office memo on Berkheimer on Finnegan's prosecution first blog, so you can find out more information there. How has the Federal Circuit implemented the Atrix software and Berkheimer decisions? The Atrix and Berkheimer decisions haven't had much impact at the Federal Circuit yet. The court hears multiple cases on patent eligibility under Section 101 every month, but most of those cases are decided without an opinion under the Federal Circuit's Rule 36. So, for example, there were eight arguments in April on patent eligibility under 101, and four were decided without any opinion. There have been two precedential decisions since Atrix, though. The first is voter verified versus election system software, which was decided on April 20th. And there the court upheld a district court decision dismissing a claim on the pleadings, finding that the patent claims were invalid under 101. This panel opinion was written by Judge Lurie, joined by Judge Newman and Judge Reyna. The voter verified opinion cites Berkheimer for the proposition that patent eligibility is a question of law and it's reviewed de novo. But the opinion doesn't say anything about factual issues except to cite Atrix software to say patent eligibility can be decided at the pleading stage when there are no factual allegations that prevent resolving the eligibility question as a matter of law. And in a case decided on May 15th, SAP America versus InvestPIC, 
the court again upheld a district court decision dismissing on the pleadings for invalidity under Section 101. This time the opinion was written by Judge Toronto, joined by Judge Lurie and Judge O'Malley. Again, while citing Berkheimer and Atrix Software, the SAP opinion decided the question as a matter of law based on the undisputed facts and not any factual issues that would preclude judgment. I should also mention that Hewlett-Packard HP filed a petition for rehearing and bank in the Berkheimer case. It was joined by several amicus. T-Mobile, Sprint, Verizon filed an amicus brief. Industry associations also filed briefs, including the Internet Association, the Computer and Communications Industry Association, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. The defendant in Atrix Software, Greenshade Software, also filed a petition for rehearing and bank, and those petitions are still pending. Mike, the Federal Circuit decided two cases last month on attorney conduct, or to be more clear, misconduct. They both resulted in patents being unenforceable. The first case is Energy Heating versus Marathon Oil. Tell us about the inequitable conduct issue in that case and the court's opinion. The patent in energy heating was for a way to heat water on the fly for hydraulic fracking instead of using preheated water in large standing tanks. Before the critical date, which was one year before the effective filing date of the patent, the inventor and his company, which was called Heat on the Fly, performed on-the-fly heating of water on at least 61 fracking jobs. They used the system described in the patent to heat the water and were paid over $1.8 million for their services. Here the district court, it was actually the District of North Dakota, and there haven't been a lot of patent cases from North Dakota that I know of, but the district court found all the patent claims invalid on summary judgment. That didn't end the case. The court held a bench trial on inequitable conduct and found the patent unenforceable. The Federal Circuit issued its opinion on May 4th, upholding the judgment of unenforceability. The opinion was written by Judge Stoll, joined by Judge Moore and Judge Hughes. Now, to start, under Therosense, the N-Bank case on inequitable conduct, to prove inequitable conduct, the accused infringer has to prove by clear and convincing evidence that the patent applicant knew of a prior art reference, or in this case, a prior commercial sale, knew it was material, and made a deliberate decision to withhold it. On materiality, the Federal Circuit first upheld the district court's finding that the prior commercial fracking jobs performed by heat on the fly weren't experimental. The court went on to find that there was clear and convincing evidence to support the district court's finding that the inventor knew that the prior fracking jobs were material and specifically intended to deceive the patent office by not disclosing this information. Therosense requires that a specific intent to deceive the patent office must be the single most reasonable inference that can be drawn from the evidence, and where there are more than one reasonable inference, an intent to deceive can't be found. Here, the inventor could not claim ignorance of the critical date. He had testified at trial that his business partner had discussed with him the need to file a patent application within a year of the first sale. An interesting side note, at trial, the patent owner tried to introduce the testimony of his patent attorney who prosecuted the patent. The attorney would have testified that the inventor told him about the 61 fracking jobs, but the attorney had decided they were all experimental uses that didn't have to be disclosed. The district court excluded the testimony, however, 
the attorney-client privilege had been asserted during the attorneys and the inventors' depositions. And when the patent owner then tried to change and waive the privilege at the last minute, the district courts excluded the testimony and the federal circuit found no abuse of discretion. The district court denied the defendant's motions for attorney fees, however. The court said only that the patent owner reasonably disputed the facts with its own evidence and provided a meritorious argument against inequitable conduct. Of course, the argument wasn't meritorious. The patent owner actually lost. So the federal circuit interpreted that as meaning a plausible argument. But that was inconsistent with the district court's finding of an intent to deceive because, as I mentioned, under Therosense, when there are multiple inferences from the evidence, there can't be an intent to deceive. It has to be the single most reasonable inference. The federal circuit vacated the decision on attorney's fees and remanded the case for the district court to reconsider. In another case, Gilead versus Merck, the federal circuit found another patent unenforceable based on attorney misconduct. But this wasn't a typical inequitable conduct case. Tell us more about the background of this case. Sure. Merck had two patents on a group of compounds for treating hepatitis C, including the compound Sophus Bouvier. Merck accused Gilead of infringing these patents with its hepatitis C drugs, Sovaldi and Harvoni. These are very successful drugs. They have annual sales of $19 billion. First, in a jury trial in 2016, the jury found that Merck's patents were valid and awarded $200 million in damages. But that was all undone because of the conduct of Merck's attorney. The story starts in 2004. Merck was then exploring possible business collaborations with Pharmacet, which was Gilead's predecessor. Pharmacet was working on a compound to treat hepatitis C. It called this compound PSI-6130, and that led to the ultimate successful compound, Sophus Bouvier. Dr. Durrett was a Merck organic chemist who had become a patent attorney, and he was prosecuting Merck's patent application on drugs for treating hepatitis C. So Merck and Pharmacet had a conference call in 2004 in which Pharmacet disclosed its compound, this PSI-6130. Pharmacet had only agreed to share this information with Merck under the condition that Merck set up a firewall. Only Merck personnel who were not involved with Merck's internal hepatitis C program could be on the call. So Dr. Durrett participated in the conference call, and then despite this apparent conflict of interest and the confidentiality agreement with Pharmacet, he used the information from the call to narrow the claims of a pending patent application to target a specific group of compounds, including Sophus Bouvier. This ultimately resulted in the two Merck patents that were asserted against Gilead, which had acquired Pharmacet. At his deposition, Dr. Durrett testified that he didn't participate in the conference call, saying he was positive he never learned the structure of Pharmacet's compound ahead of time. He changed his testimony at trial, though, and Merck and Durrett had to concede he had been on the call. Various emails and other documentary evidence came out during discovery that showed he was actually on the call. Why was Merck's patent found to be unenforceable? The district court here found that Merck and its attorneys were guilty of both business misconduct and litigation misconduct. Merck had violated the confidentiality agreement with Pharmacet when Dr. Durrett participated in the call and he should not have continued prosecuting Merck's patents. 
wrongful business conduct by itself is not enough, however. And so the district court also found that this wrongful conduct had a connection to the patents and the patent litigation. Merck was also guilty of litigation misconduct involving Duret as a witness. First, at his deposition, where he testified falsely, and second, by making Duret a centerpiece of its case. They talked about him in opening statement, through the closing argument, and his conduct had the effect of infecting the entire case. So the district court found both patents were unenforceable for unclean hands. The Federal Circuit affirmed that. The opinion issued on April 25th It was written by Judge Toronto and joined by Judges Clevenger and Judge Chen. The $200 million jury verdict was vacated. How does the doctrine of unclean hands relate to an equitable conduct, such as in the energy heating case? Is this the same thing? Unclean hands and inequitable conduct are not exactly the same, although they can both be traced back to the same Supreme Court decisions. Unclean hands is a general equitable doctrine where inequitable conduct is specific to patents. The legal standard for unclean hands is found in the Supreme Court's Keystone Driller and Precision Instrument cases dating back to the 1930s. Keystone Driller explains that unclean hands prevents relief when misconduct by the party seeking relief has immediate and necessary relation to the equity he seeks. It involves violations of conscience, as in some measure affect the equitable relations between the parties in respect of something brought before the court. Now, precision instrument is similar. It requires that the claimant must have acted fairly and without fraud and deceit as to the controversy and issue. These two cases, these two Supreme Court cases, are the basis of the current doctrine of inequitable conduct. They can be applied more broadly as in Gilead versus Merck, but the result is the same. The patents are unenforceable. Now, Mike, there seem to have been many fewer inequitable conduct cases since Theracense was decided in 2011. Do these two cases signal a return of inequitable conduct as a defense and a focus on the attorney's conduct rather than merits of the case? Inequitable conduct is certainly harder to prove after Theracense, but it never went away. It's still raised as a defense in many cases, but probably much less frequently than it was. It can't be asserted casually, as it was for many years, with charges of inequitable conduct flying everywhere. As for unclean hands as a defense, Judge Toronto made some interesting side comments about its use in patent cases. In his opinion, he said that the court has to be conscious of two competing interests. On the one hand, there is the judicial system's vital commitment to the standards of probity protected by the doctrine. Those are his words. On the other hand, you have to balance that against the potential for misuse of this necessarily flexible doctrine by parties who would prefer to divert attention away from dry, technical, and complex merits issues toward allegations of misconduct based on relatively commonplace disputes over credibility. Interesting. In other words, patent cases are still patent cases, and I read that as saying, don't try to make every case about whether the other side lied. It worked in the Gilead case, but it's not a new formula for success. You mentioned Rule 36 earlier in discussing the court's decisions on patent eligibility under Section 101. Can you explain what Rule 36 is and how it's used? The Federal Circuit's Rule 36 says that the court may enter a judgment of affirmance without an opinion. And that's what it does, a lot. It issues a judgment that has one word, affirmed, 
and it cites Rule 36. The circumstances in which the court is supposed to use this procedure are spelled out in the rest of the rule. The court may issue a summary affirmance when, one, an opinion would have no precedential value, and the judgment or decision below is plainly correct, and then it spells out those circumstances. If the decision being reviewed has errors in it, even if the court agrees with the result, then under Rule 36, the court should write an opinion explaining its decision. What's been the concern with the Federal Circuit's use of Rule 36? First, the Federal Circuit's patent docket saw a significant increase the last few years. The number of patent cases jumped from 264 in 2013 to 416 in 2016. And last year, in 2017, the court decided 426 patent cases. Most of this increase came from the Patent Office and appeals from IPR proceedings. And as the court's workload increased, the Federal Circuit's use of summary affirmances under Rule 36 also rose. In 2015, the percentage of cases disposed by Rule 36 affirmance increased to 42%. And in Patent Office appeals in particular, that number jumped to 63%. This practice has been criticized by academics and others who say these types of rulings are bad policy and can negatively affect the patent system. Some say it undermines confidence that the system is fair and that the arguments are being heard. Others have said it's bad policy because it means the court is missing opportunities to provide clarity in certain areas of law, such as patent eligibility under Section 101. Even short, non-precedential opinions can have value in informing the parties and the lawyers about how the law is being applied. But the Rule 36 practice has been defended as well. It's necessary to the court's management of its docket. Judge Moore, speaking at a conference last year, said everyone wants an opinion and that she would love to have enough hours in the day to write an opinion in every case. But that's not possible with the court's workload. Are we likely to see any change in the court's use of Rule 36? The number of Rule 36 affirmants leveled off somewhat in 2017, with only 44% of the patent office cases being decided using Rule 36. And that's about where we are now. This slight decrease may be a response to the criticism, and perhaps the judges are considering more carefully whether the court is using Rule 36 for the right reasons. It's unlikely to change, though. The Federal Circuit's Rule 36 practice has been challenged many times in the Supreme Court for almost as long as it's been around, and those challenges have never gotten anywhere. Most recently, on April 30th, the Supreme Court denied two more cert petitions challenging the Federal Circuit's Rule 36 practice. Our guest has been Mike Jakes, partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to get more information on the firm, visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.